0: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. Down the line, we have Oliver Blower, who is VoxSmart's chief executive. And joining us down the line again from India, we'll be talking to our colleague there, Simon Mundy. This week, we'll be discussing the latest FBI warning over WhatsApp and other encrypted messaging and how they might help financial criminals to hide. We'll also look at Barclays, the latest revelation that a former law firm resigned at a crucial moment in their capital raising with Qatar. And finally, a look at Indian consumer lending. First, though, to that story about encrypted messaging. And I'm joined down the line by Oliver Blower, who is chief executive of Smart, which is a regulatory technology or reg tech advisory company. Oliver, welcome. Thanks for joining us. As the FT reported the other day, the FBI has now joined the debate about the use of encrypted messaging and is warning that it's actually making it much harder for the authorities to find abuses among the financial services industry, collusion between bankers, for example, as messaging is kept private. How much of a problem do you think this really is?
2: I think that's kind of two things. One is, you know, firstly this is a significant market that is obviously a huge contributor to the global economy and therefore includes many tens of thousands of individuals who are all primarily innocently going about their jobs. So what we're talking about is sort of black swan instances of either market manipulation, insider trading and fraud, etc. But what we need to understand is do these organizations have the tools at their disposal to find these very statistically unlikely or improbable events and are they doing enough to protect themselves the employees and the organizations from what are very uncommon events and from our experience it is becoming increasingly prevalent that the organisations need better and more efficient tools to capture these events, especially when you consider the sort of seismic change in the way in which these individuals are communicating with each other. And this big consumerisation of communication that's going on within enterprises generally and financial markets more specifically – is, I think, a huge challenge for the entire ecosystem that is under question
0: here. Well, let me just bring in Caroline for a moment, because she's been involved in reporting on a lot of the scandals that have happened over recent years, the LIBOR collusion, the the foreign exchange collusion, all of which has been discovered in large part because messaging has been intercepted by regulators. And of course, that's unencrypted messaging, often on Bloomberg chat rooms and so on. Caroline, it's impossible to know for sure, but how much do you think of those scandals might not have been found if encrypted messaging like WhatsApp and so on had been the basis for communication?
1: It's an interesting question. I mean, if you look at the LIBOR and the Forex findings by the FCA and the DOJ and other authorities, a lot of what they're relying on are instant messaging between groups of traders at different banks that were using Bloomberg or other types of group messaging to communicate. And anecdotally, you hear that traders since the crisis, since the Libor and Forex scandals, you ask, okay, well, what's changed? You know, the banks have clamped down on chat room messaging. There are a lot more strict controls. So, so what's changed? And they're like, oh, well, we still communicate with each other. We just use Telegram. And I think that's another that's of these another encrypted, encrypted, encrypted systems. Yeah, system exactly. Which is probably really quite worrying, both for the banks and the regulators themselves, that traders still continue to behave as they always have done. They've just moved on in terms of the conduit of information that they're using. And that's what the regulator wanted to see change. It's by the by how the traders are communicating. It's the fact that they are communicating amongst themselves in an inappropriate way, sharing information that's the problem. And obviously, one has to caveat and say that traders need to talk to each other for a variety of legitimate reasons as well.
0: And I suppose in the past, pre-electronic communication, they would have communicated in the pub instead. Exactly, down the pub. Let me bring Oliver back in for a final word on this. And at the risk of inviting you to advertise your own products, I just wondered what you might advise companies to do to tackle this. You say there are ways in which companies can protect themselves. And I suppose also regulators can be involved here as well, because there's a couple of levels of protection for the system. One is with compliance departments internally, and then there's the regulatory backstop, obviously, as well
2: sort of echo what Caroline was saying a lot of this is focused around conduct risk management culture and really refreshing the way in which these organizations think about conducting business our entire senior management team is formerly of the financial market so we're all used to operating in these environments and have many years of experience of doing so and for us it's about enabling business to be conducted in a frictionless way but ensuring that it's done so in a highly secure and highly compliant fashion. So for us, ensuring that all of these channels that we've talked about here, WhatsApp, Telegram, Facebook, etc., are open for business, but done so in a way in which the individual is protected and the organization is protected in a way that they're compliant. We capture all of that communication, we're recording it, we're obviously storing it for regulatory retention purposes, but we're actually presenting it back to the organization so that if there is even an innocent dispute over a trade or the economics of a trade, it can be very quickly remediated, but then fast forward to a potential regulatory investigation for any kind of insider trading or market manipulation event, you can go back to the actual context of the conversation because you've got all of the mediums of communication and from that you can rebuild exactly what happened so our technology gives the organizations the capability to do that on their mobile devices wherever they are in the world and and whatever communication mechanism they choose to operate on
0: as long as they don't have a secret phone i guess but that sounds like a good safeguard and i guess it's going to be big business for companies like you going forward oliver thank you very much for joining us Let's move on to our second topic of the day and another one for you, Caroline, because you broke a really interesting story on Monday about Barclays and this long-running saga about their 2008 capital-raising with the Qataris. Tell us more. It's about the resignation, I think, of a legal advisor at a crucial point.
1: That's right. So this is part of the civil litigation that Barclays is facing as a result of that cash call at the height of the crisis, which enabled it to stay out of UK government control. And they turned to investors from Qatar and Abu Dhabi instead. So The claimant is PCP Capital Partners, which is the firm founded by Amanda Staveley, who put the Abu Dhabi side of the deal together. And she's got about a billion dollars worth of damages that she's claiming from Barclays and the trial is set for January. She filed some new documents at the High Court earlier this month. And part of that was claiming that Linklaters, the Magic Circle law firm, were originally retained by Barclays to advise it over a $2 billion loan to Qatar at the same time as this emergency cash call was going through. And she alleges that Linklater's resigned from the brief because of concerns that this loan would be unlawful financial assistance. Basically, if you reinvest money that you've been given back into the lender, it can be an illegal prop-up of that lender's shares.
0: And do we know the truth of this allegation or are we subject to lots of legal restrictions on what we can say?
1: Uh, Yes, we're subject to lots of legal restrictions. I mean, Linklater's resigned at the time on conflict grounds and that's noted in the documents that it was ostensibly on conflict grounds but she cites an email in her particulars of claim which is going between two high-level Barclays executives saying that actually the true reason why Linklater's is stepping down is because they're worried about controlling where the money ends up and of course we should note that this fundraising has sparked a litany of problems for the bank not least the serious fraud office has charged the bank its chief executive and three other men with fraud and unlawful financial assistance in the case of two of the men in the bank they haven't yet had the chance to enter a plea but it's understood that the individuals will plead not guilty in a trial is set for 2019
0: very good that's going to keep you very busy over the coming months isn't it <laughs> and years Let's move on to our final topic of the day, and we're going to India, where our colleague there, Simon Mundy, is ready to talk to us about Indian consumer lending. Simon, thanks very much for joining us. Tell us exactly what's going on in the Indian consumer lending market. Things are changing quite fast.
3: Yeah, so I think we're seeing at the moment a real expansion of the formal financial sector, which is encouraging for various reasons. On the lending side, many people in India have either had no access to credit at all or they've had access only to informal money lenders or loan sharks who lend them money at usurious interest rates. We're now seeing various different kinds of lenders finding it feasible to go out and lend to the kinds of people who weren't formally really getting much access to these services. So when it comes to traditional banks, we're seeing particularly the private sector banks are being very active in. Now, the Indian banking sector is still dominated in terms of assets, 75% of banking assets are held by the state-owned banks. But these state-owned banks got very overextended to corporate borrowers, many of whom have subsequently got into trouble with repayments. So they've got their hands full with that. Meanwhile, their private sector rivals are really being quite active, both in growing their share on the corporate side, but also on the retail side. And a lot of this is really actually being directed at relatively low-income people who previously didn't have access to these sorts of services. Beyond the banks, there's what are called in India NBFCs, non-banking financial corporations, and many of these have really grown very quickly over the past 10, 15 years when the government has liberalized a lot of regulation aimed at encouraging their growth. And again, they're growing fast. And then you have various sorts of more specialized players, which some of them are best all of the fintech companies, some of them perhaps the social enterprises. And again, they're going out and extending credit. Technology is playing a really big role here. So... One of the biggest government projects in Indian history has been happening over the past few years. It's called the Adha Biometric ID System, which has given a real cutting edge um, digital identification proof to more than a billion Indians, which is verified through eye recognition and fingerprint recognition. So using this, lenders are able to verify very quickly the identities of people. So you put all these things together, and I think, certainly on the credit side, that's very encouraging. And that's even before you get on to the other areas of the financial sector where quite similar things are actually happening.
0: And another big spur, I guess, has been the government's pretty dramatic intervention in the cash market last autumn when they withdrew two of the biggest denomination notes.
3: Yeah, so I think the implications of that are still panning out. There's definitely a lot of scepticism when it comes to negative impacts. So for one thing, the short-term impact of the cash shortage was really very severe, particularly on low-income people who were paid cash, perhaps daily wages. They were very badly affected. And it's also really not clear that the government wiped out as much of the illicit cash as it had hoped. But I think what's really interesting in terms of the possible implications of demonetization is more actually on the savings side. The central bank is estimating that the impact on the bank's deposit base was really very meaningful. So that was always a big question, because when the demonetization happened, people had to go and deposit the old notes at the bank. And the question was always how much of this would stay in the system. Now, it seems that quite a lot of it has. So the next question is how far is this going to lead to a broader chain reaction when it comes to the embrace of various different kinds of financial products. And we are seeing that the pace of investment into mutual funds, for example, which is still very small in India, that does seem to have picked up the life insurance industry is still growing very rapidly. But there's still a hell of a long way to go in terms of the growth of financial savings as a class. Net financial savings are still behind physical savings, which comes down to real estate and farm equipment and gold jewelry and these sorts of things. That's still how the bulk of Indian household savings are actually made. And if you look at gross financial savings, that's not accounts for borrowing, that's overtaken. But still, this is a country where a lot of saving is done in physical terms. So I think there will still be different interpretations of how far demonetization will really prove to be a long term. Boost to this. There's always the possibility that with rising inflation or a downturn in the stock market, this positive effect that it does seem to have had in terms of somewhat quickening the pace of investment in these broader financial products, that could reverse if people think, well, inflation's picking up, we better put the money back into physical assets, or the stock market is not turning out as well as we hoped. So I think the long-term effect remains to be seen. But clearly, the the potential for demobilization to really accelerate the shift towards financial savings products as opposed to physical savings products, that potential seems very
0: clear. Very good. Well, Simon, thank you very much for that insight into the changing, fast-changing Indian consumer finance market. Well, that's it for this week. All that remains for me to do is to thank Caroline here in the studio our guest from Vox Smart, Oliver Blower, and also Simon Mundy down the line from India. Thank you also for listening. And remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.